those of you who have supported from the very beginning of our work. Um, international theological education, in short, is exactly what DT said, that we are part of World Outreach, your missionary agency through the EPC. And two of us have spent the last two or three years working with national leaders in 10 different countries to help them train their own people. We think that they're their own best teachers. And so we spend uh, about 100 to 150 days a year traveling overseas, seven or eight countries a year, visiting with these national pastors and leaders of educational institutions, helping them with accreditation and faculty training so that when the church is planted where the church does not currently exist, there'll be a place to train those folks up. And so it's really, really exciting work. Uh, love this place. I can say this. Uh, this is one of my favorite places to ever come and to preach. One thing I don't always care for, though, is the fact that your pastor only preaches 25 minutes at a time for crying out loud. So <clears throat> every time I come, I've got to edit and re-edit and re-edit again, and it's just unbelievable. Huh? So have them work on that. Uh, here's the deal. So we're going through this parable series. Very, very exciting. And here's the great thing about parables is that they speak for themselves. There's not a lot of need for introduction. We're going to read this passage together, and then we're going to uh, just begin to kind of dissect it. But, but the whole idea of parables is that Jesus used them so that they were a great teaching tool, so that, that you and I would just naturally grasp the concepts that were going on there. And it's going to be true today of our work. Um, as we begin our time, let me just ask a really quick question. So um, I don't know who you follow for sports down here. It's the South, so I assume it's some sort of football team. But, you know, there is an NBA, too. They just had the finals, right? And so the Golden State Cavs, and we were just over in General Assembly in Sacramento. It was everywhere. Everybody was going crazy. And you may know, even if you don't follow sports, Steph Curry and KD, uh, Kevin Durant. These are just phenomenal players, each one of them throughout the season, 25 points a game. Unbelievable. Anybody know the two uh, lowest scoring players on that team? Anybody know their names? By chance. And you, probably you could say anybody at this point, and we would all agree because no, no one knows, right? Here's the reality. We don't know. These folks are on the team. There's 17 people on the team and the roster. Very few of them see any time. They're mostly just there to help KD and Steph practice during the week is really what these folks are doing, right? So I actually even had to look it up last night because I have no idea who these people are, the two lowest going at. They don't even have two points averaging, for the whole game, for any point, most of them play less than 10 minutes in any part of the season. But here's the beautiful part, okay? Here's the beautiful part, is that when they won that championship, those two guys were on the float, <laughs> right? We don't know who they are. They don't have any sponsorships. They don't have a shoe named after them, but they were on the float, and they've got rings. they got two rings now. These folks are excited, right? And here, this is, why, this is why that's okay with us, okay? Because the reality is, at the end of the day, they're not famous people. They don't have a name. But what if, what if at the end of that game, getting to the championship, the coach comes up, general manager comes together and says, not only is everybody getting a ring for this season, but at this point now, every single player is going to make what Steph Curry makes. <laughs> all of you. I've just raised all of your salaries. Everybody's going to be even. We're all going to be. Then we would cry foul, Right? Because there still is some way in which Steph Curry is, in our mind and in the, in the minds of entertainers and in the sports leagues, he's more valuable, right? He's more valuable. He scores more points. He is part of the reason why they are where they are. And so we would say, not fair. Okay, that's my own present uh, parable to mirror what we're going to be talking about today, but just to get our minds in the right sense. We are going to talk about fairness today and about the very fact that the kingdom is anything but fair. We're just going to talk about two things today. We're going to talk about the way in which the kingdom gives us a different definition, a different vision of what work is, and a different definition and a different vision of what fairness is. And so open your Bibles with me today, turn them on, whatever you have there in front of you. We're going to be in Matthew 20, 
verses 1 to 16. And I'll be going in and out of the parable throughout it. But first, let's just read the whole story in its context, what Jesus says here. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. And after agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them to his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them, he said, you go into the vineyard too. And whatever is right, I will give you. And so they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? And they said to him, because no one's hired us. And he said to them, you go into the vineyards too. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard came, called for his foreman, called the laborers and paid them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, these last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day in the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I did to you. Now, am I not allowed to do what I chose to do? It belongs to me, or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. And before you leave that page or that screen, I just want to call attention to this phrase. You have made them equal to us. You have made them equal to us. Okay? Highlight that, underline that, circle that. To me, that's the linchpin of the entire parable. I mean, that's where we're going to focus much of our attention today. You have made them equal to us. I mean, that's the primary complaint. That is where Jesus wants to center our hearts, our mind, our attention. The fact that these folks who have been paid what they said they were going to be paid have come to Jesus and they've said, you have made them equal to us, okay? And that's in verse 11. Take a look there. Okay, so this parable, it's unique to Matthew, all right? A lot of the parables that you're talking about this summer, uh, Luke might mention them, Mark might mention them. Matthew is the only one that has this one, and here's what makes it it's a little bit unique then. Matthew is also a unique gospel in its audience. Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience. He's a Jewish man, uh, a tax collector, and so he uses this phrase that's very different, the kingdom of heaven, Okay, the kingdom of heaven. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house. And that kingdom of heaven, that same thing as kingdom of God in other books, but really it's the reign in the realm of God. And so we've got to be careful when we talk about this parable, it does not say that God is the master of a house. That's not how it starts, right? This entire parable is written from the perspective for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house. He is not likening the master to God. But he is saying, here is the, the way in which God's reign and rule takes place in our world today. Here is a principle. Here is a way to understand the kingdom because he is writing to Jewish people who had a very, very concrete, worldly idea of what the Messiah would look like. They said, when when this Messiah comes, when this kingdom comes to earth, it's going to be political power. We're going to overthrow the Romans. We're going to be wealthy. Israel's going to finally be back on top again. We're going to crush all our enemies. We are going to be wealthy. And Jesus is being marginalized. He's being dismissed. And eventually, he's going to be murdered because Jesus does not fit their concept of what the Messiah should be. And so Jesus says, well, let me tell you a story. If you have not understood what I've been about, if you have not understood what this kingdom is going to look like, let me tell you a story. And here's one of the parables. And he says, this will help you understand. 
And if they are anything like us, they say, okay, well, then one key factor about the kingdom is that it is not fair. It is not fair. You have made them equal with us. So he gives us a different vision of work. Now, I would be the first to say this is not a parable that is primarily about work. I think it is about the heart and the generosity of God towards the marginalized, but it does give us some helpful ideas about how we should look at work, what work looks like within the kingdom, what God's perspective of work is like for us. It says, for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. So, very classic story, agrarian society. This guy would have got up in the morning, big, beautiful vineyard, and he needs hired laborers for the day, okay? Heads out grabs the folks that are milling around in the courtyard and in the public squares and says, look, I will give you a denarius. If you come out, help me harvest today. A denarius, really simple for us. If we were doing minimum wage, it's a day's, it's a day's wage, so maybe 50, 75 bucks, okay? You come out, work in my fields all day, I'll give you between 50, 75 dollars. These guys come out, okay? Now, let's assume that he had everybody he needed, Right, that he goes out in the morning, that he doesn't shortchange himself, he gets everybody that he needs. Here's the curious part of the story. He goes back out again. The master is set for the day, and he goes out again. He say, the third hour, the sixth hour, the ninth hour, the eleventh hour. Here's something to understand about biblical time that I did not fully comprehend until I spent some time in Ethiopia, which is still on biblical time. So in many places, especially around the Middle East, which is right along the equator, they work from six to six, 12-hour day, six in the morning, six at night. And their entire clocks and all of their schedules around a 12-hour day. So one, the first hour, is six o'clock in the morning. They still do this in Ethiopia. It is actually in their calendar years, 2014. I'm not even joking when I say that, okay? And their clocks are a little bit weird. So we would go over there and we would have these scheduled meetings with them and they would say, okay, we're gonna meet at three. But really that meant nine o'clock in the morning. They had to adjust everything like that. Still on that time. So that's what Jesus is talking about here. So when we, when we transpose that then, so he goes out again. He goes out at the third hour. So we're talking about nine o'clock in the morning. He goes out again. After these guys have already been in the field for three hours, he goes out to that same corner, says, hey, anybody still want work? He sees some people who he says are idle. They're just milling around. They're pointless, meaningless. They don't have anything to do that day. And so he says, will you come into the field? And then he goes out again. He goes out at the six hours. So like around 12 o'clock, around lunchtime. These guys have already worked six hours. They're taking their lunch break. Here comes a new batch of guys. Then he goes out again, the ninth hour, about three o'clock in the afternoon. And then he goes out the 11th hour. Five o'clock in the afternoon, one hour before everybody is quitting. And he says, is there anybody left out here? And he's like, yeah, we've been standing out here all day long. No one's hired us. Great. Why don't you come to the field? So these guys get out there. They no sooner get out there, uh, get, get on with their work. They're probably just helping pick up tools and do whatever else everybody has done for the rest of the day. And then they come to the master. They get paid a full day's wage. They get 75 bucks. They're working an hour. And the guys who have been in the field for 12 hours that day also get their $75. And they grumble as we would grumble, right? So how are they different? All right, here's the only thing that separates these workers one from another. We are not told that there's anything special or unique about the first people that Jesus calls or, or the master calls into the vineyard. They don't have special talents. They don't have special gifts, abilities. There's nothing unique about these people. These people are at the right place at the right time, just standing there waiting for work. That's it. They're no different from the people who came and got third hour, sixth hour, 11th hour, same exact people, people without a job, migrant workers, okay? But here's the way that they are similar, that each one of them says yes when they are asked. 
Each one of them responds. We don't have any instance in here in this parable where Jesus says, and the master went out and the people were like, you know what? Not today. I'm just not feeling it, okay? I'm not gonna work today. Every single one of them responds immediately. And here's the really interesting thing about those that come later. The first people, apparently there's some sort of dialogue about how much they're gonna get paid. That's a natural question, right? Come work in my vineyards today. Okay, what are you gonna pay me? The people who he goes and gets later, they apparently never ask. They don't even ask the question, how much are you gonna give me? Like these are idle people, purposeless. They don't have any, anything to do that day. They're given an opportunity to go work and they say, great, I'll go work. And all the master says to them is, I will give you what is right. And they trust him. So they go. So there is something in the similarities of the people where at least the expectation in the kingdom of God is that our work would be such that when Jesus calls us, when the master calls us to the field to work, our response is obedience. It's immediate, right? We're not haggling. We're not like, well, maybe, maybe a little bit later. Hey, maybe tomorrow. If you come back tomorrow, I'll probably be in a better place. There is an immediate response that when the master comes and he finds us idle, purposeless, meaningless in our life, apart from the work that he has given us in the kingdom, our response is obedience. Second, God doesn't need us. This is absolutely clear throughout all of the entire parable. So he goes out, he gets the first people, but the majority of the people that he hires that today, that day, he does not need. He does not need. He has an abundance of workers. He does not need them. But he continues to go out and give people opportunities to work, gives them meaning, gives them the opportunity to do something with their lives of purpose and of meaning, to be able to provide for their families, to protect them, to give them some sense of identity. Here's the reality for many of us that I think that there are so many of us that may have a physical job that are getting a paycheck and feel every bit as idle as many of those people did. Right? The very idea of being idle is, is more than just in the biblical sense of just saying, I'm not busy. Right? It means I really do not have a purpose. I really don't have a meaning. I, there's nothing in this job, even though it's, it, it's giving me my physical needs, that God is blessing me through this work, I feel every bit as idle as the other men who are standing on the corner that day because this is not the work that God has called me to or because I do not understand that this is the Lord's work that he has given me, that I have viewed it through the lens only of material and possessional wealth, not as a spiritual calling to partner with God in his kingdom, that he's put me in a time and a place and a particular people to share the love of Christ, to be the reign and the rule, the kingdom of God in that place, wherever God has called you to. I'm not talking about full-time missionary work versus secular work in a law office. I'm not talking about any of that. I mean, Jesus gives us this great parable of just the very earthly work of going out into a field and working in the vineyard. Okay, there is no sacred and secular in God's calling on our lives, but you can be exactly where God has called you and still feel totally idle because you're there for all the wrong reasons. I mean, these folks are willing to go out into the field on the promise of the master who just says simply, I'll pay you what's right. And that's probably the third thing that we need to learn about work is that we leave the rewards to God. First is that our response to God always is immediate obedience. The second is the fact that God does not need us. That should be a freeing thing to us. And finally, we leave the rewards to God. He says, I will pay you what is right. I'll pay you what is right. 
And not every one of you in this room is raising support for your finances like I am, but I'll tell you, there is something deeply spiritual about that process for many of our missionaries. In fact, two or three years ago, it was brought up at our General Assembly. It says, you know, there's a number of organizations, a number of denominations out there that just have everybody in the congregations all across the nation give a certain amount of money and all of their missionaries are on salary. Couldn't we move to that kind of plan? And of all the people who are arguing for, the people arguing against it were the missionaries themselves. He said, absolutely not. I mean, there is some sort of spiritual dynamic in the fact that we are absolutely dependent on God. And there's a partnership and there's a relationship in the work that's involved that we would totally lose if all I was doing was receiving a paycheck. I'm not suggesting that all of you go to your boss and say, could I just, you know, work for support or something like that. But the reality is, is that it's not just material things. It, it, it's a claim, it's promotion, it's recognition. There's so many aspects to our job in which, in which we are striving constantly, day after day after day, for our own rewards. Disappointed with God when they don't come. We're not recognized the way we want when we're overlooked for, for promotions, when people don't respond to us the way we want, when, when projects aren't given to us, when other people take our ideas, whatever it might be. And we're saying, when you know that you are working for the Lord, that your work is for the master, you leave the rewards to him. He says, I will pay you what is right. Not just monetarily. I will pay you what is right. If you're working for me, you just leave it to me. He says later on, Jesus would say, seek first the kingdom of God and all this righteousness and everything else will be added unto you. You don't have to worry about the other things. As long as you are faithful, as long as you are the one that is doing what I have called you to do, like the little Albanian lady, Mother Teresa, I just had an opportunity in May to come back from Albania and Kosovo. Man, there's statues of that lady on every single street corner. Because the reality is, probably the same for you too, you probably can't name another famous Albanian, right? I mean, this is it. And this country has Mother Teresa. So though, like every restaurant is named after her, every church is named after her, the airport is named after her, every street corner is named after her. Mother Teresa, this simple lady who decided to do one thing with her life, go to India, go to Calcutta, and live among the untouchables, the lepers. You know, a lady who later on when her diaries were revealed was in great spiritual depression most of her life, said continually, I do not even understand the point of this work. What is it all coming to? Because the reality is, is that I am with these thousands and thousands of people and as soon as they're gone and dead and buried, there's another thousand to take their place. It's never ending. Lepers, sickness, the caste system is not going away in this country. But there's a woman who just said, but you know what? I leave the rewards to you, Lord. I leave the rewards to you. This work is a work that you have called me to. It's not about me. It's not about building my kingdom. I'm gonna seek first your kingdom, that the reign and rule of Jesus Christ would come to Calcutta, to India, and through it to the world. And in her faithfulness to that, the woman was well rewarded, was she not? But let's get right to it here, okay? You have made them equal to us. The reality is, is that what is on our mind when we read this passage more than anything else is not necessarily work, but fairness. That you, like me, like my three boys that are here this week, and I hear it constantly, that is not fair, right? That's not fair. Any of you that have children, you can, you can understand the lament. My oldest son, Luke's 14, we did what every other parent did. We promised when we had the other boys that we would be really consistent in the fact that whatever privileges he got at one age, the other one would not get it until they're at that age. 
right? And now Zachary's laughing because he's our 10-year-old and he is doing things that his brother was not allowed to do until he was 13 and Zachary's done them all and he's 10 years old. And Luke is not laughing because that is not fair. I was not allowed to do that until I was 12 years old. I was not allowed to do that till then. I didn't get to do that till then. I didn't get to do why, why, why. It's not fair. And we have to say it all the time. Life is not fair. But this is not just about cynicism. Right, this is the reality that, that at its core, God is saying, I am not a fair God. I am just, but I am not fair. And again, that's not a bad thing for every single one of us in this room. We should be rejoicing over the fact that God is not fair. We do not, trust me, want a fair God. And any preacher who would take this text and somehow try to twist it around in some sort of way to try to save face with God to say, no, no, that's not what it's saying. There's the biblical context. And really, God is being very fair here. It's not true. That's an absolute lie. God is going out of his way here through Jesus Christ to say, let me be very clear. There is nothing about the kingdom of God that is fair. And none of you want it to be. You have made them equal to us. That's the cry. That is my cry. That is your cry. That is the heart and soul of what this passage is about, is the grumbling workers who said, you have made them equal to us. It gives them a window into their heart, to their soul. This parable is about the extravagant generosity of the master. I mean, that's what it's about. How unbelievably generous is this master? It's all about him. It begins the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is like a master. And look at this master. But me and you and everybody else who reads it, we just look at the fact that he is not fair. Doesn't matter how generous it looks, doesn't look how amazing it looks, we don't often walk away from this parable as the people who were hired first saying, what an incredible master, right? They're not standing back and saying, you better believe it, I will be here tomorrow because this guy is paying them who worked one hour the same amount he paid me. What an amazing God. All we can think about is, well, that's not fair. We just shake our heads. This is an unjust God. This is an unmerciful God. This is ungracious. This is unfair, and God's trying to lift our eyes a bit higher. Our hearts are bent towards effort. Every single one of us, Tim Keller says that the heart is the manufacturing place of idols. Little idol makers is what we are. Constantly looking for ways to justify ourselves. I mean, the amount of humility it takes to recognize that we could not save ourselves And even responding to the gospel in such a way that we say, we recognize your grace and your mercy, but don't worry, God, I will make it up to you. I mean, that that's our hearts bent, that constantly we are trying to say to God on a daily basis from the morning we get up until we go to bed at night, I will make it up to you. I mean, how many of you, and this is myself included, some of the last thoughts when you hit your head on the pillow at night is a catalog of how you've done that day. All the victories, all the mistakes. And by the end of that thought pattern, by the end of that movie strip that's playing in your mind, you have already concluded that night whether you can go to bed content in your relationship with God or feeling totally guilty, vowing that tomorrow will be better, right? I mean, that's my daily process of my heart. Right? If I've been really patient and loving and kind to my kids, to my family, I've been faithful to my work, did my quiet time, was really disciplined in my, in my thought and my speech throughout the day, had a great day, I go to bed, God, thank you so much, I'm your beloved son. 
I have a day that is totally opposite of that. Go to bed feeling worthless, hated, dejected, saying, Lord, here's my plan for tomorrow. This is what I'm going to do. Check off the boxes, right? There's no security in my relationship with God because we are people who are constantly looking for ways to climb the ladder. We do it in our work, we do it in our relationships, and we do it in our spiritual lives. But here's the reality. If you want a fair God, if you want a fair God, you would be among the people in every other religious system of the world who is saying one thing, that when we get into the other side of eternity, whatever that eternal life is for any of those religions, you're going to find a God or a series of gods with scales. And they're going to say, here are your good works, here are your bad works. That's a fair God, right? And if my good outweighs my bad, then I get to enter eternity. But here's the reality. We're worshiping a God who says, you know what the standard is? It's perfection. It's not just is good better than bad, right? Did you do a little bit more good works than you did bad works? He's saying, here's the standard to enter, perfection. And it doesn't matter how small or slight the sin might be. The scales go down. I mean, if we served a fair God who says, okay, here it is, every single person across the world, all you have to do is be perfect to enter the kingdom. I mean, that's the standard, In our twisted mindset, we've made it something different, something we can achieve, right? If I just do this, 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 and this, then God will be pleased. He'll accept me. That's a fair God. You don't want a fair God. I mean, the reality is that the scripture said that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and that he uses this parable to talk about wages. You want to talk about wages. You know what the wages is that you have earned and I have earned for our works. He says the wages of sin is death. I mean, that is what you have been given for all of your effort. Paul says that even my best works of righteousness are filthy rags before God. They're useless because what God demands is perfection, not my little tweaking life projects. Like I'll do a little bit better over here, a little bit better over here, a little more self-control over here, a little bit this, and I'll polish myself up to be acceptable before God. God doesn't work like that. And every single one of us is thankful for it. Because here's a reality of what the kingdom looks like. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, he says, Consider your calling, brothers and sisters and children. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards when you were called. Not many were powerful. Not many of you were from noble birth. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, redemption, so that is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. God chose what is foolish, God chose what is weak, what is despised. God chose what is not. And you right now might have an idea in your head who those people are, but the reality is that Paul is saying, that is you, friends. That is you. That is me. That is every single one of us, no matter what our self-perception of ourselves may be. He is saying, if God has come to you and God has chosen you to be among his family, his people, he has chosen you because you are foolish, because you are weak, because you are low and despised, because you were not, and now you are. So that, he says, no man may boast. Because if you bring something to the table, you've got that in your back pocket at all times. God chose me because of this, 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 and this. 
God chose me. Who is it? Let me ask this question. Who do you want to make sure that God never makes equal to you? Who is it that you would shake your fist to heaven if God were ever to make them equal to you? When you think about that, working in the field, crying out, I cannot believe you have made them equal to me. Is it immigrants? Black people, white people, brown people? Is it Muslims? Republicans, Democrats, alt-right, progressive lefts, transgendered, homosexuals, illiterate, the poor, the convict, the abusers, the addict? Who is it? Who is it that if God were to descend so low as to bring them the same status that you have, that he says, you are not, and now you are. I have brought you into the kingdom of God. You are not, you are despised, you are the low, you are the foolish, you are the outcast, and now I have made you a son. I have made you a daughter. You get to eat at the same exact banquet table as every single person in this room. Who is it that we would say, I cannot believe you have made them equal to me? That's the foolishness of the kingdom. That's the extravagance of God that he wants to highlight for us today. That's exactly the work that God is about the business of. And we as the people of God need to change that question around. It is not so much an indictment on God as it should be, an exclamation of our hearts. That often we were saying, God, why did you make them equal to me? But we should be saying, Lord, I cannot believe you made them equal to me. I can't believe what you've done. Look at your extravagant grace. I cannot believe it. I never thought in a million years that this person, these people, you would bring them to yourself. That's the cry of our heart. For those that have been called to work in the vineyard with God, that's the cry of our heart. And we should be the first standing in a long line of people saying those that came at the 11th hour, the 9th hour, the 6th hour, Lord, would you just pour out a full day's wage for them? A full day's wage for them. Make them equal to us. I don't want there to be any difference between them and me because you know what? I brought nothing to the table. All I was doing was standing on the corner. I was an idle worker looking for purpose and meaning in my life. And you saw me fit to go into the field for your glory. And I don't care what hour you call them or where you call them from, Lord, but we will applaud you. We want to be a part of that kind of kingdom. The radical work of God who is bringing those that are not and making them so that we might be called brothers and sisters together. Let us be a people. The cry of our heart is not, I cannot believe you had made them equal to us, but praise God, you have made them equal to us. Lord, would you show us the places in your vineyard around Thomasville, in my neighborhood, in my life right now, in which those who are standing idle on the corner might come into contact with the gracious generosity of your kingdom. Let's pray. Father, we are humbled. We are a people who cannot believe that you, Lord, would descend so low that you would find us, a people who are standing idle on the corner, and be able to graciously come forward to us and say, I've got a job for you. Lord, that we would cast off the need to constantly justify our lives and simply serve you wherever we are, that your glory might be known, that your reign and your rule may be felt throughout the world. Lord, for those that are not might become sons and daughters of God. Lord, guard our hearts. Right now, this very second, Lord, if there might be anyone, any people, any people group in which we say, do not make them equal to us. Lord, would you change our hearts that we might begin to cry, Lord, would you 
make them equal to me in your sight for your glory, for your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.